0: Good morning. Have you ever noticed how easy it is for people to become tunnel vision, to uh, look at life uh, through a very narrow perspective? Uh, consider the following example. I was thinking about this past week. How many, how many of you here today by show of hands are uh, golfers or somewhat close to what you would call yourself a golfer? Okay. Now golfers are an interesting breed of athlete. And uh, from the standpoint that I know of no other athlete, no other sport, that brags about being handicapped. (laughs) So just stop and consider that for a moment. That's a little interesting. And they can become very obsessed, and I know having golfed a few times in my life, with trying to lower their score. And I heard a story recently that kind of puts all this together. It was about a husband and wife who love to share their mutual interest, their passion for golf. And they would go out golfing together and one particular day they went golfing and a husband went and teed up and he sliced his his, uh, tee shot and it was on a par four and it kind of went out and as they went to look for it, he and his wife, they found the ball and the ball had landed behind an old barn that was on this particular golf course that they used to store uh, some of the machinery and things of that nature. And so he was looking to try to figure out what he was going to do and he thought, well, I can hit it back out in the fairway and I'm going to lose a shot and he was surveying the situation and his wife came up with a great idea. She said, you know, I just noticed something that if we open the barn doors, this side and then through the other side, you could have a clear shot right to the green. And so as he was looking at a shot, she went and opened the double doors, went through the barn, opened the other double doors, came back, he grabbed his three wood, he eyed it up and went, this is a great idea. And he took his three wood and he just smashed, I mean, he crushed the ball right through the double doors. And as it was going through the barn, it started to rise. And the problem as it started to rise was it hit a beam across the middle of the barn and came flying straight back and it hit his wife right smack in the forehead and she just dropped dead on the spot. (laughs) 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 Wait, it gets better, there's more. and uh, so anyway after about you know two to three weeks of mourning uh, you know he decided that his wife would want him to go back golfing again and he figured like a horse you want to get back on the same horse so he took a friend and they went to the exact same golf course and sure enough would you believe what happened on the exact same hole he sliced his drive again as they went to look for the ball it was in exactly the same spot and his friend was looking at it with him and he said you know I think I should hit it out on the fairway and he goes no I think if we open the barn door that you're going to have a clear shot to the green. And he looked at his buddy and says, oh, don't do that. He goes, well, why not? He goes, the last time I did it, it was tragic. And his friend said, what happened? He goes, you're not going to believe it. Make a long story short, I ended up with an eight on the (laughs) hole." Well, where's the guy that said amen a minute ago? (laughs) When I need help, help me out. Anyway, uh... Whatever that was worth, I don't know. The, the point, the point, there's a point. The point is that we can, good thing I wrote it down, there's a point. The point is all too often we can view the circumstances of life from a very narrow perspective. And uh, yet as uh, we just discovered and as many of us know, uh, oftentimes there are other vantage points to a situation that are a lot more accurate than the one that we have. And uh, for example, the Christians who were at a church called Thessalonica, were going through tremendous persecution and suffering. And because of the suffering and the persecution that they were going through, they began to interpret the teaching of Paul, who had written them a letter previous to this, and they began to interpret that teaching through the experiences that they were going through. They were going through difficult times, they were going through persecution, and Paul had told them or warned them that there would be a great day of wrath that would take place here on the surface of the earth. But he had told them that God's people would escape that great day and that Jesus Christ would come again in the air and take his people with him. And so as they were wrestling with this teaching of this great day of wrath of the great day of the Lord, they were wrestling with the persecution that they were going through, they were wrestling with the fact that Paul had promised them that they wouldn't even experience that, they were beginning to think, well, you know what, we missed something here if we're not going to go through persecution and tribulation and distress and all that goes with it why are we going through it if we're going to miss it we don't understand what's going on and so they began to, to interpret what they had been taught through the lens of their persecution and as a result they were very confused about the message and so as we look at this Paul writes a second letter to them to try to help them clarify the error that they have in interpreting life through their personal, uh, personal viewpoint, vantage point, or the lens of persecution, and if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Second Thessalonians, where Paul writes the letter to them to help them and to help us to see that the events of life aren't always to be interpreted through our own vantage point. And so many of us are guilty of that. We go through situations in life and we begin to try to interpret everything that God has to say through our own personal experiences. And so what Paul was trying to do to them and for us is to tell us this, listen, the vantage point that we have may not always be the most accurate vantage point. The perception or perspective that we have many times is is very subjective in nature. And so what God wants to do is give us the perfect vantage point, the perfect perspective to be able to take us and remove us from our circumstances so we can clearly see the truth of what God has to say. God's perspective and his vantage point is not subjected to personal bias. He is objective. He can give us the truth from his perspective, which is the truth and the only truth, and he wants to help us to see that from his vantage point or through his eyes. And that's what Paul's trying to do in the second letter that he writes, and in verses 1 and 2, he begins to give them some encouragement that we'll see that'll be an encouragement to us, and he says this, Paul and, and Silas, or Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, grace to you and peace from God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I want to put a couple things out that I went through very quickly last time we were together. And so often is the case when we go through an introduction as we're reading through the Bible, we look at it as just that. It's an introduction, let's hurry up and get to what he's trying to get to. And the problem with that is that many times the introduction, and all the time the introduction actually, is a reminder to us of the truth of our relationship with God. Look what he says. Paul and Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that he points out to them, and I want to point out to you, is a very interesting thing, and that is this. That we, as human beings, as individuals, can have a personal relationship with the God who created us. And that was a new revelation that was given to us by Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, his disciples came to him one day and said, Lord, you know what, we got a problem. We see you praying all the time. I mean, you're always praying, and you seem to know how to do it. And we're not very good at it. and Many of us can relate to this. you You know, we really need to pray more. You know what, I don't know how to pray. And so they came to Jesus and said, Hey, teach us how to pray. And this is what he said, and it's the first time it's recorded anywhere in Scripture, but the truth of what he said is profound, and that's this. Pray then in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And he went on to explain to them the intimate relationship that they now had with the God who made them. It's the first time in the history of mankind that man had been introduced to the truth that we can have a personal, living, vital, loving relationship with the God who made us. Pray then in this way, our Father. The Bible says, for as many as received Jesus Christ, in John 1, verse 12, for as many as received him or believed in his name, to them he's given the privilege to be called what? Children of God. To those who believe in him. In Romans chapter 8, we find the same truth, where we are adopted as sons, and the Bible says that we can cry out, Abba, Father. We have a relationship with God, the God who made us. It's fascinating. And so as individuals, we have a relationship with God when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Then, as we put our faith and trust in Christ, collectively, the Bible calls us an assembly of people, or the church that's located where? In this particular case, in the city of Thessalonica. God our Father is individuals and collectively we become an assembly or those called out of the world who are different from the rest of the world and that we have a personal relationship with God and the rest of the world does not. And so he wants to remind us of this truth and look what he says. He says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Profound. Grace to you. Grace has been written as being God's riches At Christ's expense. A wonderful acronym of that truth. Grace. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. These people, and the same is true of us, entered into a relationship with God when they believed what God said about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. They believed that He was the Son of God. They believed that He died for their sins. They believed that He rose from the dead according to the Scriptures to prove that He had defeated not only sin but also death. They believed this. And when they believed this, they became children of God, not because of anything that they did, but because of what Jesus did, and they believed in that. And it says that that is God's grace, for it's by grace you've been saved from your sins through faith and not of yourself. It's a gift from God so no one could boast. So he says, God has extended to us his grace. It's a gift to mankind, and all we need to do to receive that gift is to humble ourselves and and receive his gift of forgiveness found in Christ. That's grace. Now, why do I bring this up, and why does Paul bring it up as he's going to introduce what he wants to discuss? Very simply, because of this. You and I have done nothing to enter into a relationship with God other than to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It is not because we go to church, it is not because we read a Bible, it is not because we give money, it is not because we have given up certain things that we think we need to give up. It's not because of any of those things. We enter in a relationship with God because we believe what God says about Jesus Christ, 100% everything rests upon him and nothing else. That is God's grace to us. It is a gift from God. Why is that so important? Because it isn't based on our performance. Now think about this for a second. These people, grace and peace, have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, not because they're walking with God, not because they're being obedient to God, not because they're doing all the things that they think they're supposed to do, because I'll guarantee you as we go through this text, some of them weren't doing those things. Some of them were just like Peter. When persecution came, they said, hey, I don't even know the guy. Jesus, I I don't know. What are you talking about? I don't know him. Don't know anything about him, don't want anything to do with him. I'm going to lose my house, I'm going to lose my family, I'm going to lose my health, I'm going to lose something, I don't even know who he is. And they chickened out. And they failed miserably. But he wants to remind those who have failed, and those of us who have failed at times in our life as well, that it's God's grace by which we're saved, and not of our works. We won't lose it because of our failure, because we didn't gain it because of our accomplishments. And he says and you can have peace with God because of that truth. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Get something straight. I've heard people say this, and I don't know how many times I've heard people say it. I believe in God, but I don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I don't believe that I need to believe in Him to get into heaven. I believe in God, blah, 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 blah. Let me tell you something. God and Jesus Christ are always put on the same level of authority in Scripture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it goes on to say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is God Almighty. And that's why it puts them on the same plane, grace from the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on, and here's what the text is that we're going to look at. In this passage, he shares three encouragements. Now, the first one, if you you weren't here, we went into great detail, and just uh, because there were some additional insights shared with me this past week, I want to share a couple with you, and that is this. The first truth is, is that Paul encourages them, number one, through the encouragement of praise. I mentioned to you the last time we were together that praise works, that praise changes lives that praise is an important aspect of our relationship, not only as we praise God, but as we praise one another. And a few of the insights that that, that I was given and shared with this past week I think are important enough that I want to make sure that you you clearly understand them and that there's no misunderstandings. It was brought to my attention this past week that praise works only when it's sincere and only when it's true. And it's not some hollow flattery. And I don't think i made myself very clear on that point, and I want to now. This past week, we were at a soccer, kind of a soccer get-together pizza thing for our daughter's soccer team, and uh, one of the gals who plays on another team, not the same team that Krista plays on, but another team, we were talking about how their season was going and how's the team and, you know, that kind of stuff. And she said, man, you know, our coach just drives us nuts. Now that's a, you know, that's something different. Um, <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean? She goes, she's just, she's just so encouraging and she's so enthusiastic and, and she's, always, she's always praising us. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. That's great. And I'm thinking, that's great, isn't it? And she goes, no, it gets to the point where it's disgusting. I said, it's disgusting? What are you talking about? She goes, well, she says we do good even when we stink. And she said, the only terms that high schoolers could say it, so I cleaned it up a little bit. And I said, what? Well. I said, well, what are you talking about? She goes, we, I mean, she goes, we could be running and kick the ball and we could kick the ball and it could go behind us or it could go somewhere else. It could go anywhere but where we're supposed to kick. And she goes, hey, nice kick. And you think, she's either an idiot and doesn't know how to coach soccer or what happens from the opposite standpoint is this. They begin to tune her out. They don't even listen to her. Why? Because they know what she's saying is nonsense. And I thought, oh man, you know what? We got a problem that we need to clarify here. Because if we're just going around praising people for the sake of, hey, look, I'm applying what I learned, but it's not sincere and it's not true, it won't be long before people will even stop listening to you praise them. And I thought, man, we need to understand that, which is kind of interesting because, see, God's word praises us and encourages us, but also God's word doesn't hesitate to correct us either. You know, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. What, is, what does it mean to teach? To tell us what is right. Hey, you're doing a good job. That's what it's all about. Hey, that was a good job. You passed it back and forth. And I don't know anything about soccer, so bear with me on this. But uh, you, you did what you were supposed to do. Uh, the second thing is, now what's reproof? Reproof is telling them what's not right. No, 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 no. We hear that all the time. We know how that works. No, no, not like that. Not like that. Not like that. That's wrong. Well, then they kind of like, well, what am I supposed to do? That's what correction is. All scriptures inspired by God, profitable for teaching, that which is right, for reproof, telling us what is wrong, for correction, telling us how to get right. No, do it this way. And the last thing is for training, and that's basically telling us how we can stay right. Isn't that great? And so God is saying, hey, I want to affirm you and I want to commend you for what you're doing right. I want to tell you what you're doing wrong. I want to correct you in how to get right. And I'm going to train you how to continue to stay right. And that's what it's all about. We need to be specific. Not only should we be truthful, but we need to be very specific in our praise for one another. If somebody said to you, oh, you know, I'm proud of you why tell me why I need to know I need to know why you're proud of me because if I'm going to repeat the same behavior or I'm going to continue to do that which makes you proud of me I need to know why are you proud of me (laughs) because we love you that has nothing to do with me right think about that now see that's the problem when we praise people we need to praise them so that they understand what they are doing that contributes to why we are praising them. Otherwise, they don't know where to go from there. And so we need, to be, we need to be truthful in our praise. We need to be also very specific in our praise. Notice, if you're in 2 Thessalonians, notice what Paul has to say to these people. He says, first of all, in verse 3... He says we ought always to give thanks to god for you we're praising god for you why because it's fitting your faith is greatly enlarged you're growing in your faith you're making progress you're not who you used to be you're not even who you're going to be but see here's the point now there are those of us that wrestle with this as perfectionists they're wrestling with the fact is we don't want to overly praise people because then they think that there's no room for improvement give me a break why don't you at this point concentrate on the praise And then, as you gain an audience and an ear to that person, somewhere along the line, if there's correcting to be done, they're going to be more willing to listen to you correct them because you've already entered into a relationship with them. They're willing to listen because they realize that you're sincere in your praise and you're truthful in your praise. They'll listen to you if you know that you have something to offer. Hey, you're doing a great job, and here's why. Your faith is growing. Your faith is increasing. You're not who you used to be, and and you're moving in the right direction. Now, some of the people are sitting there going, yeah, but they're not perfect. They're not, well, No kid, they're not. And he's going to get to that. He's going to get to that point, but that's not the time to do it. The time to do it is when he's going to deal with that later, and we'll see that, but the reality is right now, all I want you to know is I'm praising you for this specific reason. Your faith is increasing. He also goes on as we look at this, You know, and, and you know, I was thinking about that. How can I illustrate this so it makes a little more sense? And I'm thinking, sports. There has to be a great sports illustration. Oh, Oh, bear with me, ladies. And here's the sports illustration for you. Have you ever watched a game? I'll take football, for example, and we'll go to a couple others. But football, where you have a guy who runs the ball or catches a pass, and he gets to a certain place on the field, and the referee takes the ball and moves it back. You ever been there? I know, it makes me cry, too just it's just you know and it makes them whine too they're just like hey no i got way up here and the referee goes nah you got back here and everyone's everyone's yelling that's a bad spot that's a bad spot what's he doing that's not where he was and they take it and they do it now could you imagine going through a whole game where every time you got to here the referee picked up the ball and walked it back here and said "Eh, nah you didn't get that far you got the right here you'd be like that's a bad spot Or if you're in a basketball game, every time that one team was beginning to make progress, the referees just start calling foul after foul after foul and let the other team back in the game. What happens? It gets very frustrating. It gets to the point where it just takes the will to continue out of that person's life. It's like, you know, why am I going to try hard? Because every time I get to this point, they pick up the ball and move me back. Some of us are like bad referees when it comes to the lives of people around us. They get to a certain point and they've made progress and what we want to do is say, no, you didn't get as far as you thought. I'm going to move the ball back on you and I'm going to keep moving it back on you, moving it back on you, moving it back on you until finally you don't even want to play the game anymore. See, that's what we do. We suck the life out of people around us. We suck the will out of them and the desire for them to continue to fight the fight and 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 to make progress in the game because we give them a bad spot. All I can say is this. Stop giving people around you bad spots and give them credit for where they've, where they've reached. Even though you may think they have a lot further to go and they didn't make the sticks yet or the chain yet and they didn't get the first down, it doesn't really matter. They've, got, they've moved forward. Give them a break. Specific praise keeps us fighting the good fight. Look what he says. You've, uh, your faith is growing in verse 3. Your love for each other toward one another is also growing. Your love's abounding. He says, therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your what? Perseverance, your patience, and your faith is growing in the midst of all that you're going through. And not only does he commend them for their faith growing, their love abounding, their patience increasing, but look what he also says. Hey, you know what? We're, we're going around and we're speaking proudly of you before other churches. We're bragging about you. You have become a source of inspiration for people around you that you've never met because we're bragging on you because of what you're going through. And your faith is still growing and your love is still abounding and your patience is increasing. And you know what? You've become a role model. I am a role model. I hate when an athlete says, Well, I'm not a role model. Yes, you are. You may not want to be one, but if you live in the public eye, you are one. And let me tell you something if you are light set upon a hill that cannot be extinguished because of your faith in Christ, and you are a Christian, you are a role model for Christianity, whether you like it or not. You are, and I am, a role model. When people see you at the workplace, they see you at, at the, on the athletic field, they see you in the classroom, they see you wherever you are, you represent Jesus Christ. You are an ambassador for Christ. Whether they misinterpret or not, it doesn't matter. You still are a role model. And people are watching everything you do and watching everything you say because they know you're a Christian and they need to know what that's all about. The biggest hindrance to me putting my faith in Jesus Christ was that I could not see Jesus Christ because of people who professed to be Christians were blocking my view. But when I met men and women who lived what they said they believed, and I had an unobstructed, clear view of who Jesus was, that was when I gave my life to him. You are a role model, and so am I. And so as we go through this, we need to recognize that praise works. Now, what's interesting is praise is also to be applied truthfully and specifically, and the results are incredible. I got a letter this past week, and I want to share it with you. I'll skip some of the introduction, and I won't mention who sent it to me, but I want to share you the body of the letter because it summarizes everything I was trying to get across. And listen to what this man says. He says, last Sunday, your teaching on encouragement was especially heartfelt and right on target. As a sales rep I I use encouragement in in many of my dealings with clients but I often fall short with my family and other people I encounter such as in sports. And I like that confession because isn't that true? So many of us are easy to praise people that are further removed from us and we dump all over or take advantage of the people who are close to us. And that's a tragedy. And I thought about how true that is. How many times I encourage people that work for me and yet I you know I don't encourage my own wife or I don't encourage my own children or I take for granted that which what, what they do and in some ways they, they make a cry for help or a cry for praise and I've been so dense that I've ignored it and not understood it and I've laughed about it because sometimes have you ever had your children say to you but at least mom and dad I'm not doing this I'm not out drinking I'm not out doing drugs I'm not out doing this that and the other thing and sometimes as a parent you think what's that supposed to mean? I'm not out killing people either. You know, and I don't, you know, but what they're saying is true, and, and God forgive me for this, but really what they're saying is this. It doesn't hurt every now and then to say that you're proud of us for doing the right thing. And we take it for granted because we think that they have to do the right thing. After all, it's the right thing to do, and after all, that's the right thing. If it's the right thing, you do the right thing. You don't really expect people to commend you for doing the right thing. But you know what? Maybe we should do a little more commending and praising for doing the right thing in a world that's so hell-bent on doing the wrong thing. Maybe we need to stop and say, thank you, you're right. Thanks for not going out and getting drunk this weekend with people at school. Thanks for not having sex outside of marriage. Thanks for not cheating in your classroom. Thanks for being home on time. Thank you. We appreciate that. And we love you for it. And we want to encourage you to continue to do the same thing. You know, maybe we need to do more of that, folks. And I know I've been guilty of saying, hey, you know what? Who, why, why are we setting the bar so low that that's what we have to begin to commend people for? But you know what? We need to start doing it because the bar is low in the culture that we're living in today, and we need to start commending the people around us for doing the right thing, even though it's expected, but we need to do that every now and then, don't you think? Back to what he says, he says, I encounter such people in sports and I don't share the same type of praise, I referee NJB basketball, and last Sunday at halftime of my first game I decided to tell both coaches how thankful I was for their low profile and their demeanor and for remaining seated during the game which they're supposed to do anyway. See, that's the right thing to do, but usually they don't. He says, as the game progressed through the last seconds of a close game, the coaches continued to stay seated, thereby reducing the tension. Needless to say, I used the same tactic in my other games and will continue to use encouragement as a calming tool. Is that awesome or what? Here's a man who heard the truth and immediately applied it the same afternoon that he heard it. Isn't that incredible? Let's use encouragement consistently, though, at home and at work, in our neighborhoods, with our our friends and our family. And Paul gave thanks for their faith, for their love, but what's interesting is he didn't give them any thanks or encouragement for their hope because apparently they didn't have much hope. And so while he commended them by encouragement of praise, he also will encourage them by reminding them of the promises of God. Isn't that interesting? Because as he goes through, look at verse 5. He says, hey, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just. For God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in the saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. He begins to encourage them through the promises of God. You know, I was thinking, what is hope? Hope is really being convinced of God's plan for the future, and being convinced so much so that it gives us encouragement in the distresses of daily life. To give us hope that what we see isn't always the way it's going to be. And there's three promises that he gives and three promises that we need to be reminded of. And the first promise for his people is this. That God will reward those of us who do right before God. He says you will be counted worthy of the kingdom for which you are suffering. That we will be rewarded for doing that which is right fascinating if you've got your bibles turn with me to first peter for a second chapter one you know sometimes we we forget about the future as we're going through the daily grind of distress today and what he wants to do is remind them hey look you're going through tough times but don't ever take your eyes off of the future and our future hope being convinced that what god says he's going to deliver he will deliver as he promises in first peter chapter one look at verse three He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. There it is again. It's only God's mercy and God's grace that causes a person to be born again spiritually, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see what God's promising? For those of us who have been born again according to the mercy of God, who put our faith and trust in God, who have come alive spiritually because we put our faith in Christ, he's saying that don't ever forget the promise of God that one day you will be where he is. Jesus said it best, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if it wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you that. But because I am, I'm coming for you again so that one day you will be where I am. He says that hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He can deliver because he promises deliver and he's proven he can deliver. And he says this, we will have an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. Jesus said it best when he said this, you know what, why do you put all your faith and trust and hope in things here on earth? Why do you store up your treasures here on earth where thieves can break in and steal them and where rust can come and destroy them? He says, but if I were you, I'd store up my treasures in heaven where neither thieves can come in and steal nor rust can destroy. And it's perfect and it's imperishable and it won't fade away and it's reserved in your account for all of eternity. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what do I got to do to get to heaven? And he said, hey, you, you got a problem and your problem is this that you put too much faith and hope and trust in your possessions. Your problem is, sell your possessions and come and follow me. And, they, and he struggled with that, and he said he was dejected and turned and walked away. And the disciples hearing this, Peter said, hey, wait a minute now. We've given up everything to follow you. What can we look forward to one day? And Jesus said this to him, whatever you have given up, will be given back to you a hundred times in the kingdom of God. You can't even imagine at how much I'm going to bless you in the future and the little piddly stuff you thought you gave up today, I'm going to return to you and restore it a hundred times. I don't know about you, even with the great stock market we've had over the last couple of years, you know, a hundred times your initial investment is a great retirement program. Isn't that awesome? God promises to reward us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6 for a second. I love Hebrews chapter 6 because it reminds me every now and then of what I continue to forget about God. Hebrews 6, look at verse 10. We read this. For God is not unjust. God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name and having ministered and in still ministering to his saints. Sometimes when we're going through tough times today, we think that God's forgotten about us and that he's unjust in some way. Psalm chapter 73. Read it. Oh, I don't have enough time, but you read it on your own. Read it sometime because this has been a problem throughout human history, and that's this, that there are those of us who sometimes forget about the promises of God because we're so caught up in living today and we think there's people around us getting away with things that we can't do. And in Psalm 73, he writes and says, you know what? You know, I almost slipped and I almost fell. I almost made a huge error in my thinking. It was a strategic point in my life. I looked around at people around me and I saw them getting away with stuff and I thought, that's not fair that they're getting away with it. I see people leaving their spouse and it seems like they're having a great time outside their marriage. I see people abandoning their children and it seems like, boy, you know what, they're really enjoying life now. I see people lying, cheating and stealing in their business and it looks like they're being rewarded and they're making a whole bunch more money than I am. I see them doing all these things and I think, God, you know what, this isn't fair. This is so unjust. I see people who aren't Christians making a mockery of Christianity and the crowd loves them and they're invited to places and do things that I can't do and I see me getting left out because of it and I think that's not fair. I see people walking out of courtrooms today and they get away with murder and I sit and think, that's not justice, that's not fair, there's something wrong here. And what is he saying? He's saying this, hey, never forget God's promise of recompense. What does it mean to recompense? It means to repay that which is due. To repay that which is due. Go back to 2 Th- Thessalonians for a second. And I want you to pick up on this. Because some of us need to be encouraged by the promise of God that says, You know what? Pay day one day. He says, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Speaking of rewards. For after all, listen to me. It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. It is only just that God would repay with affliction those who afflict you. Boy, let me tell you something. God is not unjust. God will right every wrong that has taken place throughout the history of mankind. God will pay back that which is due. The law of recompense. You know, it's really interesting because I heard a story of two farmers. One farmer wasn't a Christian, the other farmer was. The farmer that wasn't a Christian is having a great year. His family didn't get sick. His crops were larger than they've ever been. He's made more money than he ever has. And he was just cleaning up. And the farmer who was a Christian had a difficult time. His family had been sick. There had been illness in the family. The crop wasn't as good as it was. They were struggling financially. And you know what? And this atheist had enough guts to look at the Christian and say, You know what? I thought you told me it paid to believe in God. And the Christian farmer looked at him and said, You know what? It does pay to believe in God. But God doesn't always pay his debts. In September. You understand what he's saying? God doesn't always pay his debts in September. But God always pays his debts. The longer I live, the more convinced I am of this truth. That the greatest majority of blessings that God has to offer his people will come in the future. They'll come in the future. Why? Because he allows us to go through persecution and distress today for the pers- purpose of reaching people around us with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People are more willing to listen to us when we're going through tough times and have a peace in the midst of all of it than they are when things are going great because everybody's happy then. The majority of God's promises will be repaid in the future. Jesus said in himself, if he's going to return a hundred times that which we've given up now, well, it sounds to me like, you know what, we got a lot of stuff to look forward to. That's reward and it's recompense. Now, what's interesting about recompense is this. Have you ever noticed in the Bible how God pays back that with like kind? Pharaoh tried to drown all the, uh, all the firstborn of those of Israel, and his whole army ended up being drowned in the process. Isn't that fascinating? King Darius' advisors told him to stick Daniel and his friends in the lion's den, and guess what? They all ended up getting eaten by the lions. The Jews put Jesus Christ to death to save the nation, and it wasn't long before the nation was destroyed itself. God always pays back with like kind. He says that's what justice is all about. Listen to me as we go through this. This is very important to understand. He says this, For it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Listen to me. We run into people all the time, and I'm sure you do too, that say this, God is a God of love, and I cannot believe that God would ever send anyone to a place like hell. I hear it all the time. And you hear from people that are, quote, in their own eyes, righteous people. People that go to church but have never put their faith and trust in Christ. People that are religious, people that do, do good things. You hear it all the time from people like that that say, you know what, God is a God of love and he'd never send anyone to hell. There was a doctor who was trying to explain to a woman that if she didn't believe in Jesus Christ, she indeed would end up in hell. No matter how many times she went to church, no matter how much money she gave to the hospital. And she didn't believe anything he had to say. And he couldn't get it across to her, and then she came with a diagnosis that he used to his advantage, and she had cancer. And it needed op- an operation, and he said to her, you know what, I love you too much to operate on you, because I wouldn't want to do anything that would be hurtful to you by cutting out the cancer, and so I'm not going to do anything for you, I love you that much. And she said, what are you, nuts? What are you, crazy? If you love me that much, you'll remove that which is hurting me and killing me from my system, from my body. And he said, exactly. And that's exactly what God's trying to do when he wants to remove sin from your life. He wants to remove sin from your life because sin, because of sin you will die. The soul that sins will die. Because of sin you will be separated from God for eternity. And it's God, because of his love, that wants to remove the sin from our life. Look what he says. He wants to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty dealings and flaming fire. Dealing out retribution. To whom? Who will God deal out retribution to? To those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand what he's saying? To those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ and they're one and the same. How do we get to know God? How can God become personal in our life? How can we say our Father who art in heaven and mean it and know that it's a truth? The Bible says by believing upon Him, Jesus Christ, in whom God has sent. you recognize and understand that everything revolves around Jesus Christ? That if we believe in Him, we shall not perish but everlasting life. God so loved the world. He is a God of love that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. If you refuse to believe in Jesus Christ, 1 John 2, chapter 2, verses 22 and 23 says this. Who is a liar? Who is a liar? I'll tell you who a liar is, God says. The person that denies that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. He's a liar. You cannot believe in God without believing in Jesus Christ. I run into people all the time and say, but I believe in God. You don't even know God. Because if you knew God, you'd know that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus said it best. He said, hey, Philip, listen to me. I've been with you so long and you haven't caught on yet. And that is this. If you have seen me, you have seen God the Father because we are one and the same. You cannot believe in God and not believe in Jesus Christ. It's an impossibility. And if there is only one God, there's not several to choose from, then he is saying, and what he's saying is truth. You must believe in Jesus Christ to be saved from your sin. There is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. If you refuse to believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says God will deal out retribution to those who disbelieve Christ. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You say, well, when's that going to happen? When he comes to be glorified as saints on that day, that great day of tribulation, that great day of wrath, when Jesus Christ returns at the end of those seven years and he will deal out retribution to all those who disbelieve. Now here's where they were confused and here's where we need clarity. They were confused about this day that Jesus would return to the earth. Understand this, the rapture of the church is the day that Jesus Christ will return in the air and take his people with him so that we'll be with him. At the end of the tribulation period, Jesus will return to this earth and he will walk on the face of the earth and he will begin to deal out retribution to those who disbelieve Jesus Christ. See, he comes comes secretly for his church. The Bible says that he comes in, in blazing glory for, at the end of the tribulation period. There'll be nothing hidden at, hidden at that time. The whole world will see him come. The whole world will see him enter into this atmosphere and walk on the face of the earth. And those of us who have died are with him or, or go with him when he comes back for us will return with him to this earth. There's nothing secretive about it. The rapture of the church will come at a time where no one, none of us will know. But as far as Jesus coming to deal out retribution to this earth, he'll come and the whole world will know it. There's a huge difference and they were confused by all of that. And we need clarity ourselves. There is isn't a human being I know that doesn't innately in his, in his own heart and in his soul and in his conscience hate, uh, uh, hate uh, hi- hypocrisy and hate what they believe is a perception of mockery of justice. How many of you work in a place because of nepotism someone's treated a certain way than you are? There's a certain sense where we think, that's not fair, that's injustice. We see athletes who are pampered and the rest of the team has to go along and obey the rules, but there's always an exception to this person over here. And everybody else says, that's not right, that's not fair. We've all seen courtroom cases where the person who is guilty of murder walks away with murder, and the whole world says, that's not fair, that's not right. How'd they get away with it? It was a technicality. We didn't read him as rights. We had an unlegal search or seizure. It was, uh, we didn't dot an I, we didn't cross a T. I've sat in bankruptcy hearings in court in construction cases and I've seen people who have done work and the judge says did you file your preliminary notice and the guy doesn't even know what one is and the judge will say well you didn't follow proper paperwork and even if you did all the work and nobody disagrees with it and you did everything you were supposed to do and everybody's happy with it but the guy doesn't want to pay you guess what he doesn't have to and they walk out of the courtroom with tears in their eyes and go this isn't fair this isn't justice Every one of us know what justice is. Why? Because we've been created in the image and likeness of God and God is a God not only of love, but he's a God of justice. And so for that person to say, what, what's, what's unjust? What would be unjust? Here's what would be unjust, for God to tell every one of us that we need to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of, their sin, of our sins and if we don't, we're going to go to hell for all of eternity and be separated from him and then when it's all said and done, he goes, eh, changed my mind. That would be injustice. And God is not like man that would lie or change his mind. What God has said, he's put in writing so we can hold him to it. And if he says, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, that you will go and be destroyed in a place of hell and you will burn in hell for all of eternity, guess what? He means what he says. But the wonderful news is this. For the wages of sin is death. But you know what? The free gift of God is eternal life through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Men and women, if you don't know that when you die that you're going to heaven, if you have never received the forgiveness of God for your sins, if you don't understand that and you don't know that, then God says today is the day of the Lord and you can cry upon, uh, out to him and he'll hear your prayer and he will forgive your sin. And if you invite Jesus Christ into your life, he'll come into your life. He says, behold, I stand at the door of your life and I knock. And if anybody hears my voice, I will come into him and I will have fellowship with him and you can call God your Father, and you can have a relationship with God. Men and women, I can't think of anything more important as we look at this. You know what? God says, hey, we need to encourage each other with praise. We need to encourage each other by praising God and by praising one another. But you know what? We also need to encourage each other by reminding one another that God's promises that will take place in the future are true, that they're trustworthy, that you will be rewarded for doing that which is right. You will be rewarded for working out in a tough marriage and hanging in there because God hates divorce. You will be rewarded for doing what's right with your children. You will be rewarded for treating your customers with integrity and honesty even though if you could cheat and lie, you'd make more money. You will be rewarded for doing that which is right before God. You will be rewarded for not going out drinking with your friends, not doing, having sex outside of marriage. You will be rewarded, even though at times we forget to encourage each other. God is not unjust. He sees what you're doing, and he will reward you for that. But he also will pay back those who hurt us as well. And that's justice, folks. We live in a culture that doesn't know what justice is anymore. We sit on juries and say, we can't convict people because, after all, I'm not perfect either. It's not about being perfect. It's not even about revenge. Revenge is when we try to get something done for our own personal grudge. But but a vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Vengeance is to satisfy the holy laws of God, to fulfill the promises of God. It's a huge, huge difference. And the last thing he says is this. For those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ or are beat up every day and we're distressed and we're in persecution and we're hammered on because of the stand that we take for God and for his kingdom here on earth, he says, you know what, I'm going to promise you this, that one day you will have relief. That one day you will be able to kick back and enjoy eternity with the God who made you. One day you'll be without distress. One day you'll be without tribulation. You know, I did a funeral this past week for a woman who's here whose father had passed away he was 99, 98 years old and he had put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ you know what the most incredible comfort that I can think to share with anybody who's still left here on this earth that man's body was racked with disease he was trapped in a body that was getting old and frail and every one of us can identify with that some more so than others can identify with that and you know what the most wonderful comfort is to know That one day, when God calls us to himself, that he's going to give us relief from all the distress on this earth. He's going to call us home. And it is going to be awesome. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's reserved in heaven. It won't fade away. And you know why? Because it's protected by the almighty power of God himself. Men and women, I can't think of anything more important than to share with you than this. You need to be encouraged in your relationship with God. If you do not know that you've been forgiven from your sins because you've put your faith and trust in Christ, I just ask you to pray with me now in closing. Father, this is the first time that I've really understood that because I've rejected Jesus Christ, whether willfully or even in ignorance, that if I died today, that I'd be separated from God for all of eternity. God, I believe what you say about Jesus Christ, that he is the only way to heaven through him. God, I just put my faith and trust in him right now, and I want to know that I'm forgiven of my sins. I want to have the confidence and the assurance that if I died today, that I'd spend an eternity in heaven with God. Father, I look forward to the forgiveness that you give me. I thank you for it. I look forward to the truth of the future, the hope that we have, convinced that your plan is true. I thank you for the forgiveness of my sins, I thank you that Jesus Christ is alive in my life, that all things have passed away and all things have become new. I thank you for this miracle of life that I have been given by you, even though I've done nothing to deserve it. Thank you for your grace and the peace that now follows. And we just praise these things in Christ's name. Amen.